Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, heard here on FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining us to listen to a few reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, I will share with you a recording from the... 1946 Catholic Hour, where Monsignor Sheen gave a talk on Peter. And then we'll follow that up with a catechism lesson entitled, God in Search of Man. So please sit back and enjoy the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Broadcasting Company and its affiliated independent stations, in cooperation with the National Council of Catholic Men, present the Catholic Hour. Today we bring you another talk by Monsignor Sheen in his series generally entitled Love on Pilgrimage. The music on our program will be provided by the choir of the Sulpician Seminary at the Catholic University of America, Washington, D.C., under the direction of Mr. Russell Woolen and will be broadcast from the choir loft of the Chapel of Trinity College. A musical tribute to St. Patrick will be heard later on the program. The Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen now continues his series of talks on the general subject, Love on Pilgrimage, with an address that explores the secrets of the living soul of a great saint, Peter. Friends, The most interesting drama in all the world is the drama of a human soul. Though there are many phases to these dramas, perhaps the most interesting of them all is the psychology of a fall and a resurrection. More concretely, how do some souls lose their faith and by what steps do they later on recover it? To answer such questions, we look to the story of the Apostle Peter, whose fall sacred scripture traces through five stages. By studying them, it is possible to judge our own spiritual condition. These five stages are, first, neglect of prayer, second, substitution of action for prayer, third, lukewarmness, fourth, love of ease, and finally, human respect. First, the neglect of prayer. No soul ever fell away from God without first giving up prayer. Prayer is that which establishes contact with divine power and opens the invisible resources of heaven. That night that our blessed Lord went out under the light of a full moon into the garden of Gethsemane to crimson the olive roots with his own blood for the redemption of men, he turned to his disciples and said, Watch ye and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. Withdrawing from his disciples about as far as a man could throw a stone, 
How significant a way to measure distance. The night a man goes out to his death, he prays to his heavenly Father. When our blessed Lord came back the third time to visit his disciples, he found them asleep. A woman will watch not one hour or one night, but day after day and night after night in the presence of a peril threatening her child. But Peter slept. If he could sleep on such an occasion, it was due to the fact that he had no adequate conception of the crises through which our blessed Lord was passing, no consciousness of the tragedy that was already upon them. And finding him asleep, our blessed Lord spoke to Peter and said, What? Could you not watch one hour with me? Incidentally, it is that hour a day we ask from every Jew, Protestant, and Catholic for the peace of the world. And the next step downward is substitution of action for prayer. Most souls who give up praying still feel the necessity of doing something for God and his church, and they turn to the solace of activity. Instead of going from prayer to action, they neglect the prayer and become busy about many things. It is so easy to think we are doing God's work when we are only in motion and being fussy. Peter was no exception. In the turmoil of the arrest of our blessed Lord which followed, Peter, who had already been armed with two swords, allows his usual impetuosity to get the better of him, slashing out rather recklessly at the armed gang. What he strikes is not a soldier at all, but a slave of the high priest. As a swordsman, Peter was a good fisherman. The slave steps aside and the blow aimed at the crown of his head merely cuts off his ear. Our blessed Lord restored the ear by a miracle and then turned to Peter and said, Put up again thy sword into its place. For all that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Divinity has no need of it. Our Lord could summon 12 legions of angels to his aid if he wished. The church must never fight with the weapons of the world. But Peter, having given up the habit of prayer, substitutes violence toward others. All tact is lost as devotion to a cause becomes zeal without knowledge. Far better it would be to take a few hours off our active life and spend it in communion with God than to be busy about many things while neglecting the one thing that is necessary for peace and happiness. No such activity is a substitute for watching and praying an hour. And then the third step downward is lukewarmness. Experience proves that religious activity without prayer soon degenerates into indifference. At this stage, souls become lukewarm. They believe one can be too religious, too zealous, or spend too much time in church. A few hours later, our blessed Lord is led before his judges. As that sad procession moves on, in the unutterable loneliness where the God-man freely subjects himself to the evil darts of men, the gospel records 
and Peter followed him afar off. He had given up prayer, then action, now he keeps his distance. Only his eyes remained on the master. How quickly the insincerity of action without prayer proves itself. He was brave enough to draw a sword a few hours before, now strays on behind. Christ, who was once the dominating passion of our life, now becomes incidental in religion. We still linger on as from force of habit after the footsteps of the master. But we are out of range of both his eyes and his voice. It is in such moments that souls say, God has forgotten me, when the truth is that it is not God who leaves us. It is we who stray on behind. And then the fourth stage is loss, love of ease. Once the divine fades in life, the physical begins to assert itself. The excessive dedication to luxury and refinement is always an indication of the inner poverty of the spirit. When the treasure is within, there's no need of those outer treasures which rust consume, moths eat, and thieves break through and steal. But when the inner beauty is gone, we need luxuries to clothe our nakedness. It was only natural, therefore, to find that in the next stage of his declension, Peter should be satisfying his body. He did not go into the courtroom. He remained outside with the servants. And in the expressive language of sacred scripture, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were sitting about it, Peter was in the midst of them. He sat by the fire that the enemies of Christ had built. And as the blaze of that fire lighted up the face of Peter, it was possible for bystanders and those who came into the court to see his face. At that very moment when our blessed Lord was in court taking an oath, proclaiming his divinity, Peter was taking an oath too but not to reaffirm as he did at Caesarea Philippi that Christ was the son of the living God, but rather to deny it. Three times bystanders spoke to him. The first two were saucy maidens, and the last a man who said to him, Surely thou art one of them. Thou art a Galilean, for even thy speech doth discover thee. Peter became angry at these repeated affirmations, and with an atavistic throwback to his fisherman days, when his nets became tangled in Galilean waters, he cursed and he swore and said, I know not this man. Human respect had won. How often others know what we ought to do, even when we have forgotten how touchy are those consciences that have abandoned God. They are sensitive even to the memory that they once had the faith. Many a time I have heard such souls say, do not talk to me about it, I want to forget it. 
I tell you, you can never forget it. Even your speech betrays that you have been with the Galilean. And if these be the steps away from the faith, what are the steps back? They are threefold. Disillusionment, response to God's grace, and finally, amendment and sorrow. Disillusionment. Since all sin is pride, it follows that the first condition of conversion is humility. The ego must decrease. God must increase. This humiliation must come sometimes by a profound realization that sin does not pay, that it never keeps its promises, and that just as a violation of the laws of health produce sickness, so the violation of the laws of God produce unhappiness. And this is signified in Peter's case by the fulfillment of a prophecy made by our Lord to Peter the night of the Last Supper. Having warned his apostles that they would be scandalized in him that night, Peter boasted, saying, I will lay down my life for thee. And our Lord answered, Wilt thou lay down thy life for me? Amen, amen, I say to thee, a cock shall not crow till thou deny me thrice. A few hours later, at that very moment, that Peter for the third time cursed and swore that he knew not Christ, there came through the halls of the outer chambers of Caiaphas's court the clear and unmistakable crowing of a cock. Even nature is on God's side. We may abuse it in our sin, but in the end, it will abuse us. How right was Thompson when he characterized nature as having a traitorous trueness, a loyal deceit, and fickleness to me, in loyalty to him. The crowing of the cock was such a childish thing, but God can use the most insignificant things in the world as a channel of his grace, the cry of a child. A word over the radio, please God, one of mine, the song of a sparrow. He will even press into the business of conversion, the crowing of a cock and the dawning of the morn. A soul can come to God by a series of disgusts. And the next step in the return to God after the awakening of conscience is on God's part. As soon as we empty ourselves or are disillusioned, God comes to fill the void. As St. Luke tells us, the Lord turning looked on Peter. God does not desert us, though we desert him. He turns once we know that we are sinners. God never gives us up. The very word used here to describe the look of our Lord is exactly the same word the sacred scripture uses the first time our Lord met Peter. The meaning being that he looked through Peter. Peter is recalled to the sweet beginnings of his grace and vocation. Judas received the lips to recall him to fellowship. Peter received a look with eyes 
that see us not as our neighbors see us, not as we see ourselves, but as we really are. They were the eyes of a wounded friend, the look of a hurt Christ. And the final stage is amendment and sorrow. The scripture records Peter's amendment or purgation in the simple words, and going forth, all the trappings of sin, all the ill-gotten goods, human respect, all these are trampled underfoot as he goes out. But this leaving of the tabernacles of sin would not be enough were there not sorrow. Some leave sin only because they find it disgusting. There is no real conversion until that sin is related to the person of God. The sacred scripture says, against thee have I sinned, O Lord. Not against space-time, nor the cosmical universe, nor the powers beyond. Given a sorrow that regrets offending God because he's all good and deserving of our love, then you have salvation. Fittingly, therefore, the scriptures say that Peter, going out, wept bitterly. His heart was broken into a thousand pieces, and his eyes that looked into the eyes of Christ now turn into fountains. Moses struck a rock, and water came forth. Christ looked on a rock, and tears came forth. Tradition has it that Peter wept so much for his sins that his cheeks were furrowed with penitential streams. And upon those tears, the face of the light of the world rises, and through them comes the rainbow of hope, assuring to all souls that never again will a heart be destroyed by a flood of sin so long as it turns to him who is the son of salvation and the Lord of the universe. No wonder then our divine Lord knows all souls in their inner being, chose as the head of his church, not John who never denied, and who alone of all the apostles was present on the hill of Calvary, but rather chose Peter who fell and then rose again, who sinned and was then forgiven in order that the church might understand through time something of the weakness of sin and bear to the millions of souls its gospel of hope and the assurance of divine mercy. Fittingly then, when Peter came to the end of his lease on life, he asked not to be crucified as our Lord was with his head upright. Peter asked to be crucified with his head downward to the earth. Our Lord had called him the rock of his church, and as the rock, he was laid where he should be, deep in the roots of creation. And on that very spot where the man of courage was crucified upside down, with the stumbling feet up toward heaven, there now arises the greatest dome that was ever thrown against the vault of heaven's view, the dome of the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome. And around that dome in giant letters of gold, we read the words our Lord spoke to Peter at Caesarea Philippi, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Many a time have I knelt under that dome, 
and its inscription. Many a time, too, have I looked down below its main altar to the tomb where is buried that rock that made Rome eternal because a fisherman came to live there. No one, I suppose, has ever bent a suppliant knee to that first vicar of Christ's church to whom our Lord said that a sinner should be forgiven not seventy times, but seventy times seven without thanking our Lord for his church, who can look on us as he looked on Peter and whisper to us in hope as our sins are forgiven. If you had never sinned, you never could call Christ Savior. Let us now raise our hearts to heaven as Monsignor Sheen offers this prayer. O God, from whose hands cometh the peace the world cannot give, give us the light to see that peace is the work of justice and the concord of all nations the fruit of obedience to thy law and thy commandments. May we seek not so much to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, that in pardoning we may be pardoned and in giving we may receive. We pray for our president, for our Congress, for our homes, our people, our children, our brokenhearted, that we may be reverent in the use of freedom, just in the exercise of power, generous in the protection of weakness, merciful to those who have been our enemies. Not for our worthiness, but because of thy tender mercy, hear our prayer, that we may so pass through things temporal as not to lose the things eternal, O Christ Jesus, our dear Lord. Our choir brings us a glorious selection by Palestrina, Jesu Rex Admirabilis. Jesus, King most lovable. Hour, you heard a talk by the Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen and a program of music broadcast from the Chapel of Trinity College by the choir of the Sulpician Seminary at the Catholic University of America under the direction of Mr. Russell Woolen. Mr. Alan Nillis was at the organ. Next Sunday, Monsignor Sheen will be with us again and we shall hear more music for organ and voices. We cordially invite you to join us then. Good Monday evening to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this uh, special hour 
an hour where we get to listen to programs that no one has heard for years. Uh, these classic recordings from the Catholic Hour uh, in the 1940s, uh, very rare, very hard to find. And so through the generosity of a good friend of mine in California, I was able to secure these recordings. And uh, boy, they really do. <laughs> I find they shake me up a lot. And, uh, and I don't say shake me up in a, a bad way. It just Bishop Sheen, uh, then Monsignor Sheen, he reminds us of where we're slipping. You know, he talked about those five things. And one of them is that we start to slip in our prayer life. And all of a sudden, from praying every night before we will go to bed, we're missing a few uh, uh, times a week. And then the next thing you know, you're missing going to church. And then the next thing you know, uh, you're not reading your Bible. The next thing you know, it, it's these little slips away from God that uh, we have to challenge ourselves. And so uh, let's double up our efforts here. It's uh, one of these things where, you know, like a good mother would uh, say to you, don't worry, you've made mistakes, you can get better, we'll get pull up our socks and away we go. So uh, let's get back to those prayers that we uh, have forgot to say. And uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Michael, uh, he actually challenged me one time. Uh, he's a good friend. And he dared me to f drop to my knees every night uh, just before I got into bed and said, I challenge you that you can't get under the covers until you've said your prayers. And uh, it was something I picked up uh, years ago and still to this day. Uh, I drop to my knees before I get to crawl under the covers. And so uh, a good friend of mine used to always say to me, and it was another challenge, he says, Bible before breakfast, Bible before bed. And so uh, you can't go to bed until you've read your Bible, and you can't have breakfast until you've read your Bible. So uh, pretty, pretty daring challenges. Uh, I don't always get that. I sometimes eat before I read my Bible, but... Sometimes I find I eat for three days before I read my Bible, but I'm not here to give my full confession here. Uh, but you know what I'm saying. We all need to get back to basics. So anyway, hey, so let's uh, continue on with this catechism series. You know, we need to go back to school and learn our faith. And so uh, this is going to be lesson number three in uh, Archbishop Sheen's 50 lesson series. Uh, this one is just entitled God in Search of Man. And it is so true. Uh, there is something in us that is always searching for God. Uh, we don't always understand it, but we are in some way made for God. We don't always understand it, but we are in a way on a homing device, I want to say, uh, on this trajectory to heaven. Uh, you know, we sometimes say, I want to live forever. Well, it is true. Your immortal soul is forever. And so uh, let us uh, strive to be in a good place with our Lord in heaven for all eternity. And uh, it is a challenge, you know. A lot of times we just think, ah, yeah, I want to go to heaven because I heard, you know, the milk's good, the honey's great. Uh, you know, there's no, uh, you know, heavy-duty work there. It's, it's, it's a, there's pleasurable. I've heard good things about heaven. So it's more of a destination. Yet heaven is that union with God to be totally united with God. And uh, I think we need to strive more for that, to become united to God, to get to know Jesus Christ, to get to know all of the, I want to say, treasures that are out there, the angels, the saints, everything. So, uh, And, of course, Bishop Sheen's going to help us learn all those 
by studying the catechism together. So I encourage you now to sit back and relax and enjoy this lesson entitled God in Search of Man. Peace be to you. Up to this point, we were talking about conscience as an unbearable repartee and about the meaninglessness of life. Saying that we should lay our heart and mind open to saving experiences that come from without and which completely change our character. So the subject, therefore, of this particular talk will be the divine invasion. But I believe the best way to start it is to tell you a story about a divine invasion. A woman wrote to me about her brother, saying that he was dying in a hospital and that he had been away from the sacraments for about 30 years. She said he led not just a bad life, he was an evil man. There's a difference between being bad and being evil. Bad man steals. Bad man kills. An evil man may do none of those things. But he seeks to destroy goodness in others. Well, he was an evil man. He did much to corrupt youth and circulated all manner of evil pamphlets among the young to destroy both faith and morals. And the sister of this man, when she wrote, said, about 20 priests have called on him and he threw them all out of the hospital room. So will you please go? Last resort, Cheen, I am. I visited him this particular night and stayed about five seconds because I knew that I would fare no better than anyone else. But instead of just making one visit, I made 40. For 40 straight nights, I went to see this man. The second night, I stayed about 10, 15 seconds. And I went up 5, 10 seconds every night. And at the end of the month, I was spending 10 or 15 minutes with him. But I never once broached the subject of his soul until the 40th night. The 40th night... I brought with me the Blessed Sacrament and the Holy Oils, and I said to him, William, you are going to die tonight. He said, I know it. He was dying of cancer, but cancer of the face. One of the most loathsome sights you ever saw. I said, I'm sure you want to make your peace with God tonight. He said, I do not. Get out. I said, I'm not alone. Who's with you? 
I said, I brought the good Lord along. Do you want him to get out too? He said nothing. So I knelt down alongside of his bed for about 15 minutes because I had the Blessed Sacrament with me. And I promised the good Lord that if this man would show some sign of repentance before he died, that I would build a chapel in the southern part of the United States for the poor people, a chapel costing $3,500. Not much of a chapel? No, but an awful lot of money for me. So after the prayer, I again said, William, I'm sure you want to make your peace with God before you die. He said, I do not. Get out. And he started screaming for the nurse. So in order to stop him, I ran to the door as if I were going to leave. And then I quickly came back. And I put my head down alongside of his face on the pillow. And I said, just one thing, William. Promise me. Before you die tonight, you will say, my Jesus, mercy. He said, I will not. Get out. I had to leave. I told the nurse that if he wanted me during the night, that I would come back. About four o'clock in the morning, the nurse called. And she said, he just died. And I said, how did he die? Well, she said, about a minute after you left, he began saying, my Jesus, mercy. And he never stopped saying it until he died. Now, you see, there was nothing in me that influenced him. Here was the divine invasion upon someone who had the faith once and lost it. But it makes no difference whether one has the faith or not. There is this constant intrusion from the outside. It has come to many, many people, it comes to everyone. Though it comes so subtly that many reject it. It came to St. Augustine when he was leading a wild and furious life. And it came to him in the voice of a child and picking up scripture and reading it. And then Augustine wrote those famous lines. Our hearts were made for thee, O Lord, and they are restless until they rest in thee. And there was that famous playboy of the Sahara, Viscount Charles de Foucault, who in the midst of his wild life slept under the stars in the Sahara, and endured what Thompson called the abashless inquisition of each star. 
and there found grace and ended his life as a priest among the Muslims in the Sahara and died a martyr there. And this practically in our times. And so I might go on to mention many, many such cases of the divine invasion. But suppose we turn from just the stories to what form this divine invasion takes. It's an infection that gets into the soul. It's a grace, but up to this point, we do not know exactly the meaning of the word grace. There, I may anticipate a bit and say, there are two kinds of graces, white grace, which makes us pleasing to God, and the other is black grace, in which we feel his absence. Most people in the world today feel his absence. And really feel it. Even the atheists. You see, really, it is not man who is on the quest of God. It is God that's on the quest of man. He leaves us restless. The first question we have in the scripture is, man, where art thou? No poet has ever better expressed this divine invasion than Francis Thompson in his magnificent poem, The Hound of Heaven. Thompson was at one time a student of medicine. About the only thing he learned was how to take dope. He became a bum. Slept in Covent Garden, London, under the vegetable trucks. Contemplated suicide. And then with this poem found in his pocket, was befriended by a couple, the Maynells. And this poem sold 50,000 copies within a few years after his death, and within 30 years was studied in the University of Tokyo in Japanese. It's because it suits the modern mood. The modern mood in the sense that men are beginning to feel this stirring of the finger of God. And he goes on to narrate the various escapes that he used. God is the hound of heaven. And first is the subconscious or the unconscious mind. He feels that if he sunk down into that, he would be less conscious of this hound who was pursuing. 
And so he said he fled God. I fled him down the nights and down the days, down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitate adown titanic gloom from those strong feet that followed, followed after. And with majestic speed, deliberate instancy, they beat, and a voice above their beat, Lo, not shelters thee who wilt not shelter me. That failing, he tries nature, science, and he has a very rare and unique way of expressing the secrets of science. He said, I drew the bolt of nature's secrecies. You can almost imagine somebody pulling a giant bolt on a door and all the secrets of science and nature pouring out. I drew the bolt of nature's secrecies, studied the swift importings on willful face of sky. I said to dawn, be sudden, to eve, be soon. Keep me o'er with thy sky blossoms from this tremendous lover. He said, nature, poor stepdame, cannot slake my thirst. We know not what each other speaks. Their sound is but their stir. They speak by silences. So he tries another escape from the hound. And that is illegitimate love. And herein is hidden the story of one that he calls a bud that fell from the coronal crown of spring. And he uses the example of a hearted casement in a window in the northern part of England, where there was a girl that he used to know. And he says, by many a hearted casement, curtained red, trellised by intertwining charities. And he goes on to speak of how he sought Love with all of these little ivy growths of affection that never quite satisfied. Then he adds his fear. For I was fearful, lest having him, I must have naught else beside. How many think that? 
that God is a kind of a competitor. And then if I have him, I must reject everything else. And then he goes on to say, And when some hearted casement curtained wide, the gust of his approach would clash it too. Fear wist not to avoid as love wist to pursue. In other words, I did not know how to run away as fast as love knew how to catch me. And then he's fearful. Fearful at the end. And maybe after all, who is this one who pursues? Maybe he's going to bring some amount of detachment. And he asks, is thy love a weed? An amaranthine weed that suffers no flower to grow except its own? And then resorting to another example, he asks, must thou char the wood ere thou canst lime with it? In other words, must you put wood into a fire, burn it, purge it, sacrifice it before it becomes charcoal and before you can trace with it? And then another question, must all thy fields be dung with rotten death? Is there sacrifice everywhere? And there finally comes the answer. Before giving you his answer, unless this just be the poetic exploration of Thompson, let's find about this divine invasion in our own hearts. Just suppose you could take out your own heart and put it into your hand as a kind of crucible To distill out of your heart its inmost cravings, yearnings, and aspirations, what would you find them to be? What do you want most? First, life. Honor, ambition, power. What good are these without life? And at night we put out our hand instinctively in the dark, ready to lose that member and lose that which we treasure most, our life. Then as we continue, we find there's something else we want in life, and that is truth. One of the first questions we asked coming into the world was the question, why? We tore apart our toys to find out what makes the wheels go round. And then later on, we tear apart the very wheels of the universe to find out what makes its wheels go round. We are bent on knowing causes. That is why we hate to have secrets kept from us. Men just as well as women. We were made to know. And there's still something else we want besides life and truth. We want love. Every child instinctively presses itself to its mother's breast in token of affection. Goes to its mother to have its play wounds bound. 
then later on seeks a companion, young, likened to himself, to whom he can unpack his heart with words. One who measures up to that beautiful definition of a friend. One in whose presence you can keep silence. And so the quest for love continues from the cradle to the grave. And yet, though we want these things, do we find them here? Do we find life here in its fullness? Certainly not. Each tick of the clock brings us closer to the grave. Our hearts are but muffled drums beating a funeral march to the grave. From hour to hour, we ripe and ripe. From hour to hour, we rot and rot. Life is not here, nor truth in all of its fullness. As a matter of fact, the more we study, the less we know because we see new avenues of knowledge down which we might travel for a lifetime. I wish I knew now just one ten million as much as I thought I knew the night I was graduated from high school. So truth is not here and love is not here either in its fullness because when love does remain fine and noble, the day must come when the last embrace is passed from friend to friend and the last cake is crumbled at life's great feast. So here we are, looking for life and truth and love and not finding it. Are we destined to live an absurd life? Would we ever have eyes unless there was something to see? These are fractions, there ought to be a hole somewhere. And so we ask ourselves, very much like asking now, what's the source of light in this room? Certainly not here under the microphone, because their light is mingled with shadow. And under chairs, their light is mingled with darkness. We are to find the source of light. We must go out to something that is pure light. And if we wish to find the source of the life and the truth and the love that is in this world, we must go out to a life that is not mingled with the shadow death, out to a truth that is not mingled with the shadow error, out to a love that is not mingled with the shadow hate or satiety. We must go out to pure life, pure truth, pure love. And that is the definition of God. In other words, that's what we want. That's what we were made for. And it's he that invades the soul, as Thompson described. And after all of these evasions from the divine invasion, God speaks. And Thompson concludes his poem with, God speaking and saying, poor, piteous, futile thing. Why should any set thee love apart? Seeing none but I make much of naught, he said. 
And human love needs human meriting. And how hast thou merited? Of all man's clotted clay, the dingiest clot. Alas, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. For whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me. Save only me. All that thy child's mistakes fancies as loss, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. God love you. Good Monday evening to you all. You're listening to FM 98.5 CKWR. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this hour of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I think if you're like me, uh, you just kind of are in awe of, where does he get all this stuff? I mean, sometimes that's what I ask, you know. I mean, I've had some good catechism teachers in my day, uh, people who've taught me the faith, but he's so clear, and he uh, pulls up things where... I never thought of it that way, and uh, I'm, I don't want to say I'm addicted, but because, uh, you know, that's, <laughs> don't want to make another confession here, but uh, it, uh, I just want to listen to more and more, and these lessons really do inspire me, and I know they inspire you, so uh, please visit, I've got two websites for you that I recommend all the time. One is my website, of course, bishopsheentoday.com, and I, it's a labor of love, me and Camilla Gunnarsson set up number of years ago, and we just wanted to have all the YouTube videos, all of his television shows there, so you can watch them for hours and hours, uh, absolutely free. Uh, you can download a couple books, uh, I think I've got 60 of them there, uh, that you can just click a mouse and download some of the larger titles that you're familiar with, The World's First Love, These Are the Sacraments, um, a number of pamphlets and booklets from the Catholic Hour, uh, so just lots there to read too. And, of course, we have our radio archives where we have over five years of our shows here from CKWR. So if you want to listen to an old program, I've put the title uh, up there. So, like I say, if there's a topic that interests you, you can just scroll through the five years of shows and find something. So, again, bishopsheentoday.com. You can always email me. You can make a request, uh, make some comments, uh, and just say hello. It's always nice to hear from you our listeners. And so, and there is another website that I've uh, truly enjoyed over the years. Uh, it's fultonsheen.com. And uh, there is the complete library uh, available for purchase just for pennies. Uh, I downloaded the uh, Bishop Sheen phone app a number of years ago on my iPhone. And of course, my wife uh, downloaded the uh, device of her Android. So I have the iPhone, she has the other phone. And we both have Bishop Sheen on our cell phones and uh, on our computer. Again, just pennies, $27, gives you the whole collection. And uh, you're set for life. And uh, you can listen wherever you go. Uh, So, again, that's my tip of the day to uh, visit FultonSheen.com. And my thanks to Anthony, who has, of course, provided these quality recordings so that you can listen to them and uh, just enjoy them. So, anyway... 
All right. Well, may I recommend that you get on your knees and pray before you go to bed. And uh, I'll extend the same challenge to you as my friend Michael did uh, to me many years ago. And uh, again, just bring a friend along next week. It's great to build our family. Uh, we have thousands of listeners that tune in. We get the ratings from time to time. And uh, we're always amazed. And so thank you for joining us. And please help spread the word about uh, Bishop Sheen is back on the air uh, after many years uh, away. And uh, it is my privilege to uh, share these with you each and every Monday evening. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.